Uh, good afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started here. Thank you all for coming on this gloomy May day. Uh, but welcome. We're, this is uh, the Cato Institute's briefing entitled Math Gone Mad, Systemic Dangers of the Federal Reserve Stress Tests. Uh, I am Peter Russo, Director of Congressional Affairs at Cato. And I want to briefly introduce our two presenters. Uh, both are PhDs in economics, uh, George Selgin and Professor Kevin Dowd. Selgin is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute. His research covers a broad range of topics within the field of monetary economics, including monetary history, macroeconomic theory, and the history of monetary thought. His writings can be found in numerous scholarly journals, as well as the venerable Christian Science Monitor, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and other popular outlets. He is the author of The Theory of Free Banking, and most recently, Good Money, Birmingham, Buttonmakers, The Royal Mint, and The Beginnings of Modern Coinage. Selgin is also one of the founders, along with Kevin Dowd and Lawrence H. White, of the Modern Free Banking School, which draws its inspiration from the writings of Friedrich Hayek on denationalization of money and choice in currency. Before joining Cato in September of 2014, he was a professor of economics at the University of Georgia's Terry College of Business, and he earned his PhD in economics from New York University. Kevin Dowd is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and a professor of finance and economics at Durham University in England. Dowd has written extensively on the history and theory of free banking, central banking, financial regulation, and monetary systems. His many books include The State and the Monetary System, Laissez Fair Banking, and he is the author of a highly regarded finance text, Measuring Market Risk. He is also co-author with Martin Hutchison of 2010's Alchemists of Loss, How Modern Finance and Government Intervention Crashed the Financial System. Dowd has affiliations with the Cobden Center, uh, Institute of Economic Affairs, the Independent Institute, and Instituto Bruno Leone. Dowd earned his PhD in economics from Sheffield University. So to augment your understanding of today's topics, I want to direct you to two additional resources. First, earlier this week, Selgin and Dowd and others held a conference in New York City called Capital Unbound, the Cato Summit on Financial Regulation. Uh, video of the proceedings will be up shortly at Cato.org, so usually it's within 72 hours or so, so look for that. And finally, the full policy analysis upon which this presentation is based um, is located on the table outside as you entered. Um, so let's get started, and please welcome George Selgin. Thank you, Peter. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, there are two different ways of understanding financial instability. There's the one you usually hear about that's often taken for granted, which views financial instability as an inherent problem of capitalist financial markets. And then there's the correct view. And that is the view that's becoming increasingly uh, 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 well appreciated, especially among economic historians, that holds that the real source of financial instability rests in misguided financial regulations. We are regulating our financial systems into a state of instability, and we've been doing it throughout the history of this country. I pose a challenge to students, or I did when I taught uh, money and banking and similar courses as an academic, to <clears throat> name me a major financial or banking crisis that can be explained without appeal to misguided regulations. And I have yet to meet anyone who could meet that challenge. I can't go into the history at any length, but I uh, offer the same challenge to anyone here. You can reach me at Cato if you think you found an exception, and then we'll see. 
Today's, uh, that is, the most recent financial crisis is certainly no exception to the rule, what with its taxpayer-backstopped GSEs, its Federal Reserve negative interest, real interest rate policy during the boom, its government-created cartel of, rage, uh, of rating agencies, its twisted Basel risk-weighted capital requirements, its Sarbane-Oxley mark-to-market rule, et hoc genus omni. In any event, there's lots of regulation out there, and most of it ends up doing more harm than good. Since its establishment in 1914, the Federal Reserve has itself been a major source of misguided regulations and policies that have contributed to our financial instability. The Fed has contributed as a regulator of money, for example, when it allows big swings in interest rates or inflation. It has contributed as a lender of last resort, both by errors of omission, as when it failed to do anything to stop the banking crisis of the 1930s, and by errors of commission, as when it rescues firms on too-big-to-fail grounds and thus invites the taking of excess risk by other big firms. Finally, the Federal Reserve has been an important source of financial instability in its capacity as a bank regulatory authority. And it's one of the many ways in which the Fed's regulation of banks has caused trouble that our guest today, Kevin Dowd, uh, has come to speak about. Kevin's uh, topic is, of course, the role of special risk modeling strategies as sources of financial instability, uh, particularly uh, to the extent that these are used to conduct stress tests and to set bank capital requirements. I've known Kevin for a long, long time. He was one of a triumvirate of us who were all writing books on something no one else had written about for ages at, at the same time without knowing that we were all at the same thing, which was free banking. Uh, 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 I, uh, Kevin's already been introduced to you, so I'll say no more than that I'm sure you're going to find his discussion of risk uh, of uh, math gone mad quite interesting and, I'm afraid, a little bit scary, too. So, Kevin? Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you, Peter and, and George, for the, uh, the lovely comments. Um, first off, I'd like to say it's great to be here, a special privilege to be here. Um, a private joke, um, you may have, if you look at what Larry and George and I have been doing, I have a tendency to sort of write more about American stuff than British stuff, and George and Larry, of course, have written wonderful stuff about all the British, the interesting British uh, monetary screw-ups. I occasionally dabble in that. But um, yes, I endorse everything that, uh, that George has said. I think uh, screwing up financial policy is something that I think we in Britain have considerably longer history of, going back at least to the foundation of the Bank of England in 1694. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to talk about that. Suffice to say, same policy line, when you have government intervention creating instability, then the only source of, the only, the only solution to those underlying problems is to remove that government intervention. 
so it goes without saying that we're all we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. But I want to focus here on particularly the st uh, stress testing and regulatory risk modelling. And to start with, I would like to give you a quote from Ronald Coase, who died just recently. He said, in my youth it was said that what was too silly to be said may be sung. In modern economics, it's put into mathematics, and hence the, uh, the title of the paper, Math Gone Mad. And by math, I mean risk modelling. And my focus is regulatory risk modelling, and in particular, the Fed stress test. So let's see where we get. The, um, the main message is simply that, well, not so much that risk modeling is useless, but rather that it's worse than useless. And the reason for that is that the models are gameable. So you have the appearance of uh, you know, scientific risk control, but the reality is it's all a game to evade. And therefore, the, uh, the models provide false risk comfort. So imagine the following, you're the Titanic, and you've got a faulty ice you know, radar, it's better to put some guy up on the deck to have a look to see if there's anything out there. So it is worse than useless because of gameability and false risk comfort. There's masses and masses of evidence for this, not just one or two screw-ups, it's, it's across the board. And I would like to talk a little bit about, obviously, real examples. I'm a great believer in, in you know, let's downplay economic theory, let's look at how things really work. So I'll, I'll go on to look at some examples later. So, okay, um, as a warm-up, let's look at the foundations of risk modeling. So the first assumption is the assumption of Gaussian returns, the standard bell shape. Now, some of you might remember in August 07, a famous case where uh, Goldman Sachs was getting whacked, and the CFO at the time made a complaint. He said, we're experiencing 25 sigma events several days in a row, really unlikely events. So these were likened to events one would expect to see one day in 10 or 100,000 years, right? Very unlikely. If you actually do the math properly, the waiting time for a 25 sigma event is that. So that is 1.3 with, I think it's 135 uh, zeros after it. That's a hell of a long time to wait to see one day with such an event. But in practice, we see them quite often. So the number of particles in the universe is infinitesimally smaller. So some wit, I think it was Richard Feynman, said these numbers are so large that the term cosmological hardly suffices. So perhaps we should call them economical instead. So that's the first thing. Bottom line, Gaussian massively underestimates the risk of big losses, which are the ones that you should be worried about. The second pillar is the value at risk, <coughs> risk measure. Um, this tells us the worst we can do if a bad event doesn't occur. You might think that's a bit odd. The worst we can do if it doesn't occur. But what about the bad event that might occur? Well, then you, you know, you're in real trouble. The third problem, which kind of captures the others, is simply that risk models don't work. <coughs> now, there are masses of evidence on this, but I'm only going to give you just the one. This is a chart. Don't believe me. It comes from the Bank of England. And it, it offers you two measures of risk. The first is, uh, the, f uh, the, the, the one in blue is the, uh, it's risk, the average risk-weighted assets of banks, a nice sample of international banks. And as you can see, that uh, according to this measure, the riskiness of banks was declining all the way through the financial crisis, pre and post the financial crisis. The other one, now the nice thing about the blue line is that incorporates the impact of all the risk modeling. The other one, the red line, is a primitive 
leverage, uh, a leverage uh, number. It's the ratio of bank assets to capital. It's very crude. The sophisticated people say you shouldn't use it. And as you see, it indicates rising risk until the crisis hits. So one indicates falling risk, the other rising risk, and we all know how that turned out. The unrisk-adjusted numbers work better as a prediction. Now, there's masses of evidence, uh, other evidence I can point to, but bottom line is why is this going on? Again, loads of reasons, but one that matters above all is that the risk-weighting system is being gamed. So no model can take account of the way in which people will respond to it because the model is used to control people. People don't like being controlled. They work around the system. They game it. So you might ask, well, why does bad risk modeling persist? Now, this it took me an embarrassingly long time to understand this, about a decade. And the reason is very simple. Bad risk modeling persists because the banks want bad risk models because they understate their risks. And the regulatory system's captured by the bank, so it reflects what the banks want. So that's why it persists. So risk modeling is just a game. It's not risk modeling at all. What you're trying to do is you pretend to model risks, but what you're really doing is gaming the risk numbers. You get them as low as possible. And this game even has a name. It's called risk weight optimization. Get them as low as possible. The lower the risk weights, the lower your capital requirement, and the, the more capital can be siphoned off in bonuses and things like that. So the whole banking system becomes denuded of its capital. So the bottom line is capital regulation is used to decapitalize the banks. That's not how it's supposed to be, but that's how it is. And then when the bank goes bust, you just get a bailout and the game starts all over again. So you have all these problems and more with regulatory stress testing. Now let me make a couple of general points and then look to some specific examples. One general problem is that regulatory stress testing implies a risk management standard, an approved way to manage your risks. Now I would assert to you that this is inherently uh, self-contradictory. So remember, when VAR numbers go up, the banks are, are going to be pressured to sell in order to get their VAR numbers down. The problem is that what works at the level of an individual bank cannot work at the level of the system. So one bank can, say, can sell, but the lot cannot. The assets have to be held by somebody. So if everybody does the same thing, everybody sells in a crisis, then pri cr prices crash and the crisis amplifies. So the thing is totally counterproductive. And that is inherent to any, any risk management standard. That's the first point. Second point is even simpler. It, uh, it's another contradiction. Central bank stress tests lack credibility because central banks have to push the message that the system is safe. I mean, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. So even if they think otherwise, they cannot possibly admit it. Because in that case, people would say, well, you haven't been doing your job, etc., etc., and it gets very uncomfortable. And of course, the banking system might collapse. So the stress test then becomes a PR exercise. I can't overstate how important this is. This is like a Soviet election, in which we have a fair election, the Communist Party always wins. You can only ever get one result from the stress test. So therefore, it's just a PR exercise, and you may as well dismiss it as such. And if you look at the history of these stress tests, and I'll go through them, they all give us the same message. It's always safe until it collapses, and then we don't know what happened. So I could go on 
and talk about various criteria for stress testing. I'll just put those up for a few seconds. And this is what the stress testing literature suggests you should do if you have to do it. It's a whole bunch of sensible stuff. Suffice it to, to, to say that regulatory stress tests fail all of these criteria, all of them. So number one, consider, do not use risk-weighted assets, right? For the simple reason, go back to that chart that I had. They don't, they don't, not that they don't work, they're worse than useless. The lower the risk weight, the higher the real risk, but you can't see it. So they all use risk-weighted assets. Number two, there should be multiple scenarios. So what do they do? They use one scenario or one key scenario that dominates. So consider this. Let's suppose that you're covered under one scenario and you, you attend to it with loving care, like the, the Federal Reserve does. Fast amount of resources going to modeling this. Okay, how do you know that you're then covered against all the other scenarios you didn't consider? Well, I would assert that to ask that question is to answer it. You don't. So no single scenario can possibly give you confidence that the system is safe. It's just, it's just impossible, and it's obvious. Anyway, let's go through some of these as they... Uh, instead of me going through those criteria, I'd like to look at some real-world examples. And st let's start with the Fannie and Freddie stress test, which are actually really interesting because they show everything that can go wrong was that wrong in that case. So these go back to the early 90s. There was concern about their solvency. And there were proposals at the time to increase their capital requirements to, to, to make them safer. So Fannie then managed an audacious coup. It commissioned Paul Folker to examine the matter, and Volcker concluded that Fannie was safe. That's great. That gave the, the management the opportunity to fight off people who were meddlers from Congress. Fannie's chief executive could then claim that their business was safer than banking. Here's a nice quote. He said, there are no unpleasant, side no unpleasant surprises because of the nature of our business. We don't have any see-through buildings, any third world countries, or any strip shopping malls we just have those mortgages. So that gave them the green light. It then took nearly a decade for the rocket scientists to come up with model-based capital requirements that were wafer thin, a little north of zero. And this at the time when the GSEs were loading up at, on, on subprime, which was then known as affordable housing. Okay, so it didn't look so bad at the time. This wasn't a problem because the models said all the toxic stuff was safe. So there we are. As the details were being finished, Fanny then scored another coup by commissioning a distinguished team of economists led by Joseph Stiglitz to carry out their own investigation. And the Stiglitz team concluded that even under a decade-long nuclear winter-type scenario, a very, very severe scenario over a decade, the probability of failure was basically zero. Nothing to worry about. So the GSEs then went on a massive binge and effectively failed six years later, after just half of a not very nuclear winter. So the question is, what went wrong? Well, part of the problem is the obvious one, that the stress-based capital requirements were actually very, very, very low. That is a kind of hint. Of course, you may ask why they were low. We'll get to that. But part of the problem was that the GSEs, uh, the system allowed the GSEs to game the system by loading up on risks that the models didn't capture. This is all kind of, you know, kindergarten stuff, but that's exactly what happened. It was almost as if this was a design feature of the system. Now add to that a couple of other points. 
the GSE's management were working to contracts that encouraged excess risk-taking. So they were encouraged to game the system that was meant to control them. And then, on top of that, the management were gaming the GSE's government-sponsored status. So the joke was this. They'd tell Congress not to worry because the government wasn't on the hook. Then they'd turn around and tell Wall Street not to worry because the government was on the hook. And then, of course, you had all the government meddling. And then we, we wonder why it all went wrong, you see, but it's all there. So let me turn to the Fed stress test. Now, these were introduced in, nine, in 2009, and the initial one, the Supervisory Capital Assessment Program, was a fairly light exercise. This was followed by the Comprehensive Capital Assessment and Review in 2011, which has since become an annual event. Now, I've got to emphasize, the CCAR is a highly aggressive, invasive program in which banks are required to prove the adequacy of their models to the Fed's models. Each CCAR has been more extensive and demanding than the previous one. And then on top of that, in 2013, you had all the Dodd-Frank stuff came in, the DFA tests. And in 2014, there were new requirements under Basel III, and all of these are somewhat different from each other, and they've got to do them all, and the pro process is still expanding. Now, critics pointed out that the tests were reliant on the Fed scenarios, and these were not scenari uh, particularly stressful. The key scenario is an extremely adverse scenario. The others don't really matter, so effectively it's only one scenario, and it's fairly mild. They were also blind to risks identified by outside observers. Let me give you an example. The risks of a Eurozone collapse were ignored till the 2012 CCAR. Well, you may have noticed that the Eurozone nearly collapsed the year before. That's probably why the Fed woke up to the problem, but it put it in after the event. And the CCAR still ignores the biggest risk of all, which is the risk created by enormous off-balance sheet activities, and nobody really knows how big these are. You might remember we had some of this before in 2008. Now, when I was researching Math Gone Mad, I interviewed the senior managers of a major US bank. And what they told me was this, that, that much of its normal business activity had to stop because of the need to feed the models demanded by the Fed. 98% of management time at that time was on regulatory stuff, 98%. Both its IT systems and its management were completely overwhelmed. The bank was forced to make huge investments in models and modelers it didn't want and didn't need to satisfy the Fed. It had to call a halt to further acquisitions because it couldn't assess the regulatory risks in its potential acquisitions. And the models warped its whole business model right down to the level of individual loans. And this was a conservatively well-run bank. It had no problems. It had done very well through the crisis because it was conservative. But the models couldn't be challenged. So we're betting everything on these models and hoping that the models are right, but they're not. So the models couldn't be challenged, but the banks have no incentive, sorry, no choice, but to manage to what they perceive the Fed's model to be. And the Fed won't tell them. So they don't do that. They fail the test. So the bottom line is that they end up with much the same crappy models. They then make much the same mistakes, and the result is much greater systemic risk. And here's the nice point. None of the models pick up this systemic risk. Okay. And then furthermore, over time, the tests become routine, as they inevitably must do. And the results become predictable. 
the whole exercise then becomes a meaningless exercise in compliance, a ritual. serves no purpose other than to make us all blind to what's really going on. There's now a flourishing consultancy industry that specializes in how to pass the tests. The guys who run this industry are experts. These are former Federal Reserve officials who used to conduct the tests themselves. They leave the Fed and get 10 times more in the private sector. So the bottom line is the very process of repeated stress testing makes the, stress, the, the tests themselves futile. Okay, put all this together and you have lots of jobs for risk modelers, which is all great, and a growing systemic risk that the models cannot see. So that's what we're looking at. And I've, George has been very critical of the Fed, and I've been occasionally critical, but let's be kind to the Fed. The Fed here is better than the other central banks. So let's give the Fed credit that when it comes to screwing up, the Fed's an amateur, basically. To prove this, let's go east. Consider Iceland. 2004, the, f the big Icelandic banks had assets equal to 100% of GDP. They then went on a massive expansion. Three or four years later, the ratio of bank assets to GDP was 900%. Bit of an expansion, a world record, in fact. CDS spreads were then saying, ah, oh, there might be a bit of a problem. But fortunately, in, in August, an IMS stress test suggested there was nothing to worry about. The banking system was resilient. And a whole bunch of other regulatory stress tests confirmed that. The, stress t uh, the banking system then collapsed completely in October, three months later, two or three months later. The stress tests had missed the imminent collapse of the entire banking system, which is a bit of a shame, really. Then we come to the new, block, the new kids on the block, the Brits. Now, in this context, I'd like to disgrace myself and make a, a shameless plug for my follow-up to Math Gone Mad, which the Adam Smith Institute are publishing next week. Um, you notice the title. I'm going to change that title, well, I'm hoping to, to uh, no, no Stress, Please, We're British. <laughs> okay, sorry about that, but I can't resist bad taste. It's not just, I'm not as good as George at this, but anyway. The, um, the first UK stress test was last year. The, bank, the message was the banking system was safe. The exercise had a single scenario. It was based on risk-weighted assets. In fact, it had a very low hurdle ratio in terms of risk-weighted assets, 4.5%. Now, if we redo the exercise, the Bank of England's exercise, with the new capital ratios coming through under Basel III, which the bank conveniently forgot to do, you find that most of the British banks fail. Sorry, I should have put those up. Um, so, same exercise, higher hurdle, opposite result. It's based on the bank's own analysis, so it's not even as if I've invented the figures or anything. So, if we go further, um, I mentioned earlier the benefits of leverage ratio rather than RWA ratios. The Bank of England failed to conduct any tests based on the leverage ratio. This is despite the fact that the chief economist years ago warned us of the dangers of using anything but Andy Haldane. Um, really bright guy, but they, for some reason, failed to put it in the test. And this despite the fact that the bank already expects a 3% minimum leverage ratio to be followed by UK banks. So what would have happened had the, banks had the Bank of England carried out a leverage test? Now, the minimum leverage test, the one in the UK, and it it is a very low leverage test. 
is uh, 3%. And if you do a 3% test, the banking system's underwater. So you have a situation where the bank's failure to test against its own minimum doesn't really inquire, uh, inspire confidence. But then consider the alternative. The banking system would have failed. So the headlines would have been something like, stress tests show banks up shit creek no paddle. <laughs> yeah, so a slightly different headline, you see. So you could say the bank was damned because it didn't, but it would have been damned if it did, right? So a very British cop-out. Right? But even the 3% leverage test is very, very low. 3% means a 3% loss on your assets and you're insolvent. What are many people suggesting? 15%. That is five times bigger than the leverage ratio test that the Bank of England did not carry out. 15% would have been, take us back to what the Fed was in about 1914. Nice, conservative, safe capital buffer. Didn't do it. But by 15%, the UK banking system would not be underwater. It would be in Davy Jones' locker. You see, completely sunk at the bottom of the ocean. Now, I don't want to be too hard on the Bank of England either. It's, it is pretty bad. It's definitely better than what the Fed did. When it comes to the masters of the screwed-up stress test, there's nothing like the Europeans. So let me just give you an overview of the European test and then go through them. The, the, the first one in 2009 was a very simple test and, you know, uneventful. All the banks passed, no problem. Some critics were a little bit suspicious, but no, no, don't worry about that. But the fund starts the next year, and you, the mental image here is Laurel and Hardy, or the Three Stooges. So... The second test, 2010, covered 91 biggest banks. Seven failed. The combined shortfall across the, Euro the Eurozone was $3.5 billion. Three uh, euros. 3.5. That is 0.15% of GDP. Yeah, that's what they said. Now, this figure was a fraction of the estimates that independent analysts were getting. And by the way, by independent, I mean independent not people who had a vested interest in trying to tell us that the European banking system was safe, like the European banking supervisors. This, this uh, European test also ignored the elephant in the room, which was sovereign debt. You know, there was not going to be any, there not going to be any sovereign debt uh, defaults. Why? Because we're committed to making sure it won't happen. So what you have is policy make-believe undermining the stress test before it even got going. So, anyway, that might cast a doubt on its credibility. Any doubts then were dispelled three months later when the entire Irish banking system collapsed. The Irish banks had all passed. So what you have is a second banking system, not a bank, a banking system bites the dust, having passed the stress test. In 2011, the new EBA decided to get involved. And obviously, everybody was embarrassed about the previous test, so the EBA assured us that it was not going to happen again. Going to get tough, get it right, take us seriously. So there was now a much greater awareness in Europe of the sovereign debt problem, and the EBA badly needed to uh, prove itself. So what did the EBA do? It came out with a shortfall of 2.5 billion, which was less than the one that it had before. So this is how we get reassured that everything is safe. So, so to reassure us, it comes up with a lower number. Any doubts about the credibility of that exercise went up to smoke three months later when the giant bank Dexia failed. Dexia was top of the stress test class. It was the, the top. 
So in the meantime, the EBA got a huge amount of flack, so they went back to their office frantically revising their numbers to correct them. It took about four months, and it came back with a number that was 45 times, the, the shortfall, 45 times bigger than its earlier best estimate of a little while earlier. Okay? Even so, experts panned it and said it's nowhere near big enough. Okay. Then the, the giant Spanish bank, Bankia, failed. Bankia had also passed the stress test. And then here's the icing on the cake. A little while later, the entire Cypriot banking system collapsed. So the Cypriot banks had also passed the stress test. So now you have a hat trick. Three national banking systems had passed the stress test and failed afterwards. It's almost like passing the stress test is the kiss of death. <laughs> it means you're going you're gonna to go. So now we come to last year. So at this point, the EBA is relegated. It still carried out a stress test, but nobody paid any attention to it. We now have the single supervisory mechanism. Okay, we've learned our lessons. No more crap, guys. Take us seriously. So the ECB, very aggressive, get tough mandate. We really will be credible. No more fiascos. Trust us. It also had a, pr a strong, desperate need to prove itself. So what did it do? It gave us a shortfall of 25 billion euros. It doesn't really cut it. 25 billion euros is 0.1% of bank assets. This is the get tough stress test that will reassure us all. To which one can only say, why on earth did they bother? It's just small change. A chorus of experts then instantly dismissed the whole thing on publication. A whole bunch of people. It was just embarrassing. But let me outline a couple of um, problems. One problem, which might be familiar by now, is the adverse scenario was very mild. The stress tests are supposed to be stressful. This particular one was a beauty. The, the, the macro scenario assumed that inflation, which was falling, would, uh, would, would in the worst case scenario, would be 1% low in 2014. By the time the results were announced, much of the Eurozone was in deflation. It's a bit of a problem there. So when challenged at the press conference, why did you not take account of the possibility of deflation? The vice president said, the scenario of deflation is not there because we consider that it's not going to happen. And it was already happening. So I mean, you just can't critique this. Um, anyway, independent experts then came up with shortfalls that uh, were, in some cases, 30 times bigger than the ECB's estimates. Moreover, the ECB's party line was that everything was fine in the core of the Eurozone, but it's the fringe, you know, the pigs, the Italians, the Greeks, whatever, Spanish, Irish, whatever. There's, that's where the problem is. This is an important political statement. But the independent stress test suggested that the biggest problems were in the heart of the Eurozone, the very heart of the Eurozone. And the, we're talking here about the big French and German banks, okay, the biggest of them. The reason for the discrepancy, the main reason between, uh, for the discrepancy between the ECB's results and independent results was that ECB used RWA ratios. The independent people focused on leverage. Remember that it's the, the RWAs are blind to risk. That's why the ECB was getting such results. So consider, so the bottom line here is that the 
The, re the, the ECB used RWAs that hid the risk, while the leverage test used RW leverage which revealed the risk. And the implication is that the European banks only appear to be strong because of their superior expertise in gaming the risk numbers. Same pattern, you see. So consider the big banks, Credit Agricole, BNP, Sockgen, and Deutsche. Each of these, number one, easily failed the ECB stress test. Easily passed, sorry. Easily passed. Secondly, would easily have failed an undemanding leverage test. Thirdly, would produce enormous shortfalls if under a severe leverage test that they didn't carry out. And number four, they had very low ratios of RWA to total assets. In other words, they were gaming the RWA system like masters. So bottom line is that the, these banks are more risky but are better at hiding their risks. And if this doesn't frighten you, I don't know what will. Let's look at Deutsche. Late last year, the, federal, uh, the New York Fed slammed Deutsche for a systemic breakdown in its controls and its US arm, which is symptomatic, one imagines, of the culture of the bank as a whole. But look at Deutsche's size. Its derivative exposure was 100 times its deposits. Right? It, it, it's, it's total exposure, meaning that it is a giant hedge fund with a relatively small bank attached. Um, this, its total uh, balance sheet is 22 times German GDP. Tom Hernig, two years ago, famously said, it's horribly undercapitalized, it has no margin of error. And Deutsche's response was a very aggressive denial and said, oh, hold on a minute, the leverage ratio is a somewhat a little bit higher than what you think it is, which kind of confirms the problem. Zero Hedge said it was the most systemically important undercapitalized bank in the world. And what else did he say? He said, um, that's right, the slightest systemic risk in Europe and Deutsche gets it. As Deutsche goes, so does Germany, so does Europe, so does the world. See? And it easily passed the stress test. So basically, I think we can dismiss the stress test totally. So just to wrap this up, one fairly obvious lesson, stress tests don't work. They're a faulty radar system. They're dangerous because of false risk comfort. Imagine the Titanic with a faulty radar. And because of the hidden risks that they create. So that they make the whole system much less safe. Chicken entrails would be better. I'm a great fan of chicken, chicken entrails because the Romans used them to considerable success and it worked for them, so why shouldn't it work for us? What would we do? What should we do? I personally would recommend an act to prohibit all regulatory modeling altogether so that no model of any sort could be used by any regulator. No risk model, no regression model, no nothing. You force them to go back to audited accounts. There's some issues about getting your accounting standards right, but the kind of things that you can do on the back of an envelope. That system what we had before, and it worked fairly well. Um, it would also require any such attack on stress testing would require the United States to withdraw from the Basel system, which it certainly should shouldn't try to reform Basel. Basel is insanely wedded to risk model, and Basel is bonkers, basically. So the best thing is just to get out. Of course, uh, I think we could go much, much further than that, and so rather than end the stress test, 
carried out by the Federal Reserve, I think we should go a little bit further and end the Fed as well. But that's perhaps possibly a little bit more ambitious. But thank you all. Thank you all for that. Yeah, very uh, scary stuff. So hopefully we have some optimists out here who want to maybe challenge or ask questions. Uh, just make sure you state your question in the form of a question. We'll try and get as many in as we can in the next few minutes. So who's first? Ah, you in the back. I'm going first because I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know every point you've been able to get several things you I didn't understand. This is all over my head. But it's not your fault. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, I like the access as well. returns regardless of risk. And that's one of the consequences of the Fed's policy of bailing out or promising to bail out any too big to fail firms, not just banks anymore, but thanks to their action with Bear Stearns, there's this implicit hope on the part of other financial firms that the Fed might uh, cover their losses or their creditors' losses. So that, that's a big problem. And uh, when you add to that the fact that the Fed in also imposes these mathematical models for addressing risk, with the banks often playing their part uh, in uh, encouraging 
the use of these models so that they can do what they're doing anyway, but with less capital, you've really got a recipe for disaster. Bankers can no longer legally make loans the old-fashioned way. They're not allowed to, to say to the regulators, look, we've known this customer for ages, we know they're a good risk, uh, we, we trust them, they have several projects going, and we, we think on the whole they're a good credit risk. That's out. The Fed says you can't do that anymore. You've got to run the numbers, and you've got to do it our way. So, uh, when you combine all of these factors, you've got a perfect storm of, of uh, risk-taking of uh, uh, incentives. And it's, 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 it's very unfortunate. So, uh, uh, if you go back in time, and just to add a little bit more to this, before there was too big to fail, and even before there was deposit insurance, it was actually quite common for banks to go out of their way to establish reputations for having a lot of capital, or very high reserves, or only holding government bonds. There were banks that made a business out of safety. But that's because in those days there were bank customers, more of them, many more, who knew that if you didn't seek out safe banks, you might get stuck with a dud that, and you would lose all your money. Of course, there were also customers who took excessive risks, just as there are customers today, today who fall for Ponzi schemes. But, uh, but the fact is now the market for safe banking and the market for prudent lending has been so utterly corrupt, corrupted that they're in danger of, of being, uh, 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 becoming extinct. Can I just add something? I mean, the fundamental difference... Oh, sorry. The fundamental difference is that in the old days, risk-taking was privatized. You, you screwed up, you took the loss up. We've managed to go from that system, which worked well, to a social contract that says, in effect, that uh, profits are privatized, but losses are socialized. So this is all thanks to one form or another of government uh, intervention, including deposit insurance, including the central bank. And even the solution, and you've got to have a laugh about this, even the solution that is offered to this excess risk-taking created by this intervention is even more intervention in the form of capital regulation. But the banks have managed to play that game to convert this into, uh, into if you like, uh, accelerated risk-taking. So the, the point about risk modeling is it's about using the models to game the system. So what should be controlling risk is actually the vehicle through which risk-taking is expanded to an even greater extent and in a way that nobody can see the damage that's really being done. If I could add one more thing that, that was implicit in Kevin's remarks uh, and in his talk as well. With old-fashioned capital requirements, it was just a percentage of bank assets and that was that. And therefore, if there was a 15% capital requirement, it might be that the bank had all kinds of risks, because nobody was punished trying, pretending to make, impose a capital penalty depending on risk. But the 15% really did mean a 15% cushion, which meant that there had to be some substantial losses before any creditors were, were uh, uh, likely to take any loss at all. But with uh, the Basel and other risk-adjusted capital requirements, it's literally possible, through the gaming that Kevin talked about, for a bank to be taking huge risks, 
but to do it in a clever way so that the risk-adjusted uh, capital requirement ends up requiring them to hold hardly any capital at all. So that when the actual uh, risky events occur, there's nothing. It, it's, it's, it, there's nothing before the losses start to be felt by the, the creditors. Now, the creditors may be insured by, uh, rescued by bailouts or insured otherwise, uh, but that just, of course, passes the buck to uh, either other financial institutions that are paying into insurance funds or taxpayers or what have you. So it's a very rotten system. Plain old 15% without risk weighing uh, is better than uh, a fancy risk-adjusted capital requirement that can be gained, that can actually make it cheaper for banks to take excessive risks, and, and, and very cheap indeed. Actually, I don't think you're interested in either of the response answers my questions, either of the questions, but uh, if you'll forgive me, I'll speak to you after the... Uh, Anyone else? Yes, you. Uh, this is more like, I guess, a, like an ethical or like government as an agent. Like, why would they want to insert... Well, also, two things. Why would they want to insert this kind of false, like, hope or this, like, idea of stability into the actual market in general? And secondly, why do other financial institutions not check back other financial institutions if they get bailed out, it's going to come at their expense? Like, why continue to gain the numbers as, like, an entire, like, system and not, like, hold each other accountable? In the, uh, let me answer that in reverse. In the old days, if banks were liable to each other, then they would monitor each other and be careful who they loan to. The new system greatly reduces that incentive because somebody else is backstopping the system. And partly also because they're not, in some cases, the old monitoring devices are, and practices are being crowded out by, by the, the taxpayer uh, kind of incentive, uh, the, the taxpayer bailout that's at the back of everybody's mind. But why did we get into that system? Well, the Basel system originated in 1974, when a minor German bank went bust, and there was some inconvenience on the market, and the, the various central banks realized that they needed to coordinate a bit better. Okay, fair enough. So then what happened was, uh, Basel over time became a massive international regulatory treaty-driven enormous uh, sort of monster. It just started off as a get-together to coordinate uh, practices so that one central bank didn't inadvertently cause problems to another. So what you have is a kind of mission creep. And the original Basel requirements were fairly sensible. And then when Basel II was coming through, the people were saying, oh, well, actually, the problem with Basel is it's not risk sensitive. And so the ideology took hold that we needed risk sensitive regulation, not the old crude leverage. And then the banks captured the system and then inverted Basel. They corrupted it into a vehicle through which they could reduce their capital requirements which completely subverted the whole exercise. And the point was they did it so well that nobody noticed until the financial crisis. It, it, this is horrendously complicated stuff. I had no idea. I was writing about this for years and years. I didn't realize what was going on. And nor did almost anybody else, except the insiders, because they knew what they were doing. The whole point is it's a game. So it is, it, it's, it's perfect. What it does and what it's supposed to do are diametrically opposite. If I could add, the, the banks, there are banks that are not part of this, uh, that are not benefiting from it, that are paying into the insurance funds rather than uh, uh, being bailed out or, or benefiting from uh, uh, guarantees. 
but what can they do? You know, uh, they don't like what's going on, but uh, they're really not in a position to change it. And for the most part, with rare exceptions, the last thing they dare do is publicly criticize the regulatory regime because there's a great uh, a deal of arbitrariness in the way regulations are enforced. And believe me, both the Fed and some of the other regulatory agencies, and there are several to which every bank is responsible, uh, have all kinds of ways of retaliating against bankers who criticize them, and uh, that can include uh, uh, having the um, uh, examiners crowd into the bank and, and just interfere. It can mean refusing permission to open a branch. There's all kinds of ways they can uh, uh, engage in payback. So there are bankers who don't like the present system and who don't benefit, benefit from it, but they have no choice but to go along. Can I, can I add just to, to what George has said there? The, um, in some cases, the bankers were being threatened with jail under Sarbanes-Oxley and, and stuff like this. You know, the slightest paperwork error can, if the government is so minded, land the, seeds, you know, the senior managers in jail, uh, spending vast amounts of time signing hundreds of pages of documents to avoid that. But that is a power that they have. And those powers have greatly increased with Dodd-Frank. In effect, under Dodd-Frank, they can just close a bank down if they want. And, on you know, 24 hours notice. But also, I was going to say that the, um, when, I, when I interviewed the management of this bank for Math Gone Mad, the, they were privately scathing of the Federal Reserve, but they wouldn't go public. And I, was, I, I got an email from the chief counsel of the bank requesting me not to name the bank in anything I wrote. They were paranoid, and they have reason to be paranoid. That's what's frightening. Do you know that if a banker today uh, want, has a customer, a, a borrower with, it, with whom the bank has had a good relation, who they'd like to make a loan to, and they normally would have, but under new regulatory conditions they can't do it, they must not only refuse the loan to the customer, and that could be a loan for a project where the customer has several other projects that are just doing fine, but now that one's going to go under because it won't be financed and it could drag him under all around. Not only can the bank not make the loan that it would normally make, but it is illegal for it to explain to the customer why it can't make the loan. That is, it's illegal for it to say that it's because of regulations. That's illegal. Can you believe it? And, and, and I've heard from bankers who said they've had old clients who they cared about deeply literally crying in their office, begging, and they couldn't tell them that they had no choice but to refuse. There were stories of suicides and stuff like this as a result, and, and people wonder why bank uh, lending is so low, which is a key reason why they, you know, we've not recovered from the recession. Uh, Norm. I don't want to make your presentation seem even more pessimistic than already was, but uh, it seems like we're in a no-win scenario because if we do an honest stress test, then we're going to find out that the American and European banking systems are in dire straits. But if we don't do it, we could be facing another meltdown that potentially could be bigger than 2008. So is it really a question of meltdown this year because Congress says do a real stress test, or 
meltdown and whatever because we didn't do the real, I mean, it's, do you see a reasonable way out, way to avoid a, another financial crisis? Well, I think the optimist, basically no. But the, the, the optimistic part of me says I think we can envisage ways of sorting the banking system out. But they've got to be radical. But the pessimistic part of me says we're not going to do it. We're going to stick our heads in the sand until it just becomes... Look at Greece now, right? Greece is in such a desperate state because people kick the can, kick the can, kick the can for as long as possible, collectively don't take responsibility, and then when it finally falls apart, it's going to be much worse than it would have been. Yeah, I'm as pessimistic as you are. Uh, you seem to be, I, I might be totally misinterpreting it, this is a little bit of this was also above my head a little bit, but uh, it seems like you're fairly against the idea of FDIC and fairly insured deposits. So I guess my question is, is you know, do you feel like we should eliminate the FDIC system or do you feel like it should be reformed to a point? I, I, I agree with both. We should reform it by eliminating it. Um, the key point is that deposit insurance uh, removes the incentive of depositors to monitor their banks. We didn't need it before. Before we had deposit insurance, we had more stability. There's an enormous amount of academic research showing that deposit insurance is one of the key creators of systemic Before instability. 1929? Sorry? Before 1929? Well, deposit insurance federally was uh, 30... Uh, or 33 34. when the law was passed. Yeah, we didn't need it before? No, no. No, but you didn't. And previous experiments at the state level with deposit insurance in the United States uh, with, with government funds and so forth, like on the FDIC model, had repeatedly failed. No, no, but there's two different issues here, though, Kevin. One is whether the insurance had inherent problems, and they knew it did back then. Yeah. FDR had criticized it for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah. The problem was the U.S. banking system, which was the only one to adopt this scheme nationally until 1967 when Canada did, and then it was some time before it spread. Uh, our banking system was uniquely fragile because we didn't let banks branch, and, and they were very weak. They failed in droves, as everybody knows, in the 20s and 30s. Now, that, that was one of many occasions when many people who understood the real structural problems said, look, we've got to let our banks branch so they can be strong like the banks in other countries and this won't happen again. But politically, the lobby of the established small banks prevented that from happening. Deposit insurance was a, a makeshift to prop up a structurally lousy banking system at the time uh, in, in the teeth of opposition to reform of the structure of the system. That's the story of deposit insurance in the United States. It was a, it was a bad solution to a, a problem that should have been solved by structural reform. To just give you a counterexample, Canada had nationwide branch banking and had had it for, for a long time. Didn't have a central bank, by the way, so it couldn't rescue failing banks uh, through that mechanism. It established one later in the Depression for political reasons. Not a single Canadian bank failed throughout the entire Great Depression, not one. And, and, and in contrast, as you know, 5,000, 5, 6,000, depending on how you measure it, banks uh, failed uh, here in the 1930s, and almost as many in the 1920s as well. But it was a lousy banking system. It was a lousy banking industrial structure. Deposit insurance was a makeshift solution. 
to keep that bad structure in place. Because by then, of course, by 1934, you weren't going to put your money back in the bank if you, if you, if you uh, didn't have some guarantees. Not in, in another of those small unit banks without diversity. But with insurance, the banking system could be kept on life support. I just add to that, there wasn't a single bank failure in Canada between 1923 and 1986. Not a last five years relative to our system here? Extremely well. Extremely well. Uh, you can, you can, uh, it's an interesting repeated uh, a story in uh, the, the history of banking in North America that uh, Canada has generally managed to do much better in avoiding crises altogether or getting through them than the United States. And this has to do with all kinds of differences in the regulations in the two countries. That's the bottom line. One, one, one point the gentleman in the, the back had mentioned that is among those I did not address uh, is that in Canada, generally speaking, uh, banks have to hold on to mortgages that they originate, they cannot sell them. And that, that, that certainly had a salutary effect on mortgage lending there, but there were many other factors as well including the fact that there are no GSEs uh, handling uh, mortgages and implicitly providing taxpayer uh, guarantees for such in Canada. All right, so before we uh, thank our speakers, I want to just point out if you enjoyed the quality of scholarship you saw on display this afternoon, uh, there's plenty more in Cato's white paper called Policy Priorities for the 114th. Uh, there's now 14 chapters in here on things that should be achievable in a bipartisan fashion. Uh, this year or next. So uh, let's give a big hand for our speaker.